New Jersey's public television network, NJPBS, and its newsroom, NJ Spotlight News, present a new podcast series called Hazard NJ. Hosted by journalist Jordan Gosporé, Hazard NJ digs through the muck of hazardous Superfund sites in the Garden State. Figuratively, of course. She reports on the data and talks to local communities to present a clearer picture of how climate change may be putting these sites and the people who live near them at risk. Environmental factors like sea level rise and global temperature fluctuation continue to alter the planet's landscape. As Hazard NJ explains, those factors put places like Hackensack and Passaic Rivers and former industrial cities like Newark and Ringwood at risk for future contamination. You'll hear from experts, stakeholders, and residents on what's being done, if anything, to prevent that from happening. Find Hazard NJ wherever you listen to podcasts and at njspotlightnews.org slash Hazard NJ. Hey, Hot Cakes, it's Mary. Just wanted to drop in and acknowledge that the audio for this week is not exactly what we would have wanted. You'll notice in our guest uh, background today, you can hear some sirens. And while uh, <laughs> I can confirm that Olofeme Taiwo is not on the run from the law, though that would be fun and interesting, um, he was just in a hotel room and there was a lot of ambient noise. So that's what you're here. But I promise this conversation is worthwhile. So, you know, just sort of imagine that those sirens are coming to arrest uh, fossil fuel CEOs. Hey, Hot Cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Mariana Yves Hegler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. Oh, Mary, I feel like every week we say this, but there was a lot of climate news <laughs> this week. So yep, much. Yep, there was. So much. Yeah. I mean, this episode, we're going to be talking to Olufemi Taiwo about uh, so many other philosophical questions. But before we do that, yeah, let's talk about some of these big events that have happened. I hear tell that something's happened um, on your continent, correct? That's right. In Brazil, the whole world has been watching the elections there, mostly in the climate sphere, because, you know, there's this sense that if if Bolsonaro can get ousted from power, that maybe we have a shot at protecting the Amazon rainforest. So it felt like a really high stakes climate election. Um, Bolsonaro's main challenger is Luis da Silva Lula, as he's known, um, very much like a workers party labor movement guy far left, and he was really gaining in the polls in the lead-up to this election. He did get, I think, about 6% more of the vote than Bolsonaro, but in Brazil, basically, if you don't get more than 50% of the vote, then they have a runoff election. So that is where we are now, with Lula getting, I think, 48%, like he just missed it. So um, they will do a runoff at the end of the month. And that sounds like it might be a win, but unfortunately, like, I don't know, all the people I'm seeing in Brazil are kind of like, no, this is really bad because, you know, if it wasn't decisive, then that's where we feel like there's going to be a lot of Bolsonaro kind of saying, oh, there's fraud and, and sort of stoking violence. And then also quite a few people from his party um, won 
elections further down the ballot. So that means that they will still have a significant amount of, yeah. of power. I, I think people were really hoping for like a real decisive, like no to fascism vote, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that didn't happen. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about this in more detail in a future episode, but Bolsonaro is a horrible, horrible human being. Just the worst. Literally full of shit. That was my favorite news story of 2021. Did did you catch that one where he had to like, he basically like hadn't pooped for like 14 days and had to go to the hospital to have his poop removed because he was so bad. I want to know this so bad. Do you? I don't want this information in my head. I don't (laughs) want. No, I'm not asking follow-up questions. I am not asking follow-up questions about that. Absolutely. No, I don't want to know anything else. That's the, it's like, I'm sorry. That is the image in my head every time I I hear or say that someone is full of shit. It's uh, Bolsonaro literally being full of shit. <laughs> to all of our listeners right now, I'm sorry. Okay? I'm sorry. I didn't know this was coming. <laughs> In all seriousness, Bolsonaro was not expected to perform this well. No, not at all. Yeah, that's concerning. It's Yeah, it's deeply concerning. And he's already been laying the groundwork saying that he won't leave even if he loses. If he loses, there's been fraud. And he has a very rabid base. It's very much like Trump. And this dude is in control of the Amazon rainforest, among so many other really important climate implications, for lack of a better term. Like, it's not all fossil fuels, although there is a lot of fossil fuels. There's a lot of, like, you know, deforestation projects. And, yeah, it's it's a lot of power to give to a fascist. Yeah, yeah. The biggest thing in the Amazon under his watch has been just massive clear cutting of forest for cattle grazing. So that's kind of a one, two punch when you think about deforestation plus beef. And then on top of that, like a complete disregard for, for indigenous sovereignty, just absolutely trampling over the rights of, um, of the communities who live in those places and, um, whose land is being just, uh, taken from them. So yeah. Not a good it's like dude. indigenous hostility. It is. Yeah. Like, yeah, really, it is. There's actually um, there's a really good documentary coming out soon called uh, T- The Territory. And it's it centers on this indigenous community in the Amazon and how they're trying to protect their land from just random people charging in and cutting shit down during the night. Like they'll go in in the nighttime and do this. Um, Mm. So and I like I talked to the one of the people that worked on that and she even a few months ago was like, you know, even if we get Bolsonaro out, Bolsonarismo is here to stay and like. You know, it's very, again, like very, very similar to what happened with Trump in the U.S. Yeah. So, yeah. But we'll definitely yeah. keep an eye on on what's happening there and, and um, we'll see what happens at the end of the month. Yeah. The other thing to touch on really quick is these horrific storms. So Hurricane Ian hit Florida and South Carolina last week. It was almost a five, actually. Yeah. When it hit uh, Florida, it was pretty destructive when it passed through um, South Carolina. I'm not sure what the category number was, but it was still a hurricane. Yeah. And this is a really terrifying phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It used to be conventional wisdom that when a hurricane passed over land, it would slow down. Mm -hmm. And now that's not really happening. So Ian passed over 
Cuba, Category 3, gathered even more strength in the Gulf, hit Florida, then weakens to a tropical storm, gets back over on the water, and goes to South Carolina as a hurricane again. This is not how hurricanes used to behave. And honestly, the first time I saw a hurricane behave this way that I can remember was Katrina. Katrina hit Florida, went back into the Gulf, got more strength, and then came back to Mississippi and Louisiana. Mm. And this is getting more intense because of climate change. And I talked about this a little bit on What a Day last week Mm -hmm. that, you know, people will say that, oh, it's hard to attribute a hurricane to climate change. It's not hard to to attribute how much worse a hurricane gets to climate change. Mm Because, sure, hurricanes existed as a phenomenon before climate change. But this type of behavior is, is strange. That's right. And... Yeah, so climate change is making these storms move slower, which means they just sit on you, which is not what you want in the case of a hurricane. Mm -hmm. Climate change has made sea levels rise. That means there's more water to be brought in with a storm surge. Climate change has made the oceans hotter, which means like that's that's what feeds a hurricane is hot water. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if it passes through Cuba and, you know, the land is supposed to to nullify it, but it sits right back on those hot waters of the Gulf, well, it's just going to get stronger again. Right. And our, our oceans have absorbed 90% of global warming since yeah. modern record keeping began. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was this period, like, in the early science where, like, even some not, some scientists that weren't working for fossil fuel companies even were sort of, like, like tentatively hopeful that like, oh, well, maybe that the oceans will save us kind of, you know, like the oceans will absorb all this stuff and then it'll all be fine. But they quickly realize it like, no, in fact, not fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like the oceans are a big carbon sink. Yeah. So that's where all the they're absorbing all this carbon that we've been putting into the atmosphere. But Mm -hmm. like that is what carbon capture and storage kind of is, Yeah. you know, or like that's I just don't think it bodes well for everybody who, like, touts, we're just going to capture the carbon from the fossil fuel plants and stick it in the ground. Right. Because, like, this is what's happening when the ocean stores carbon. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like there's probably a lot of unforeseen consequences, but whatever. I I also just want to mention that there's been some problematic coverage of these storms that kind of pits it as DeSantis versus Biden. Yeah. And a lot of people being like, oh, now Ron DeSantis is into FEMA. And, you know, which, like, I get it's it's like it's easy to kind of look at it and say, oh, you know, you voted against disaster relief for people in New York after Superstorm Sandy, for example. And you've been very vocally anti anything climate. But like, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, DeSantis is a is an idiot. But the people of Florida is what we need to be concerned about here. You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just, you know, it used to be kind of thought of that in the immediate aftermath of a disaster is not the time to talk about climate change. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. I, th- I think that that actually was never true. Mm-hmm. But in the immediate aftermath of a disaster, I don't want to hear shit about no old white men fighting. That's right. I really don't. Mm-hmm. It's immaterial at this point. Yeah. And let's let's save that analysis for the hypocrisy of the right wing for later. Yeah. But also that's not news. They're always hypocrites. It's not. And it's also not a like, actually, I I was just reading something from someone who studies rhetoric. And I I wish I could remember her name right now. But um, but basically that like 
accusing people of or pointing out hypocrisy is like is not a convincing argument. Like it doesn't do anything. It sort of makes you feel good and smart, but it doesn't convince anyone else of anything. Right. <laughs> you know? And even in that case, only momentarily. Yeah. Right. Because like, yeah, a liar is going to lie. Right. That's right. You know, it's it's just kind of what they do. So anyway, I, I don't want to see any more headlines like that. Like media, please do better on on that. But again, these storms are not going to stop. Hurricane season's not over and these problems are far from over. So yeah. I actually think that's why it's good that this week we're taking a step back to talk to a philosopher about the big philosophical questions around climate change. Yeah, really, really great conversation um, with Olufemi Taiwo, who is a philosopher. He's written two books recently, one on reparations with a real specific focus on climate reparations. It's called Rethinking Reparations. And the other one is looking at the sort of warping and weaponizing of identity politics that's kind of gotten us away from actual structural change and towards these kind of more surface conversations about who's saying what. So like just super, super interesting guy definitely looks at this stuff from this like a uh, zoomed out view of, of what's needed for structural change, which t- honestly made me feel a lot better and like more like, okay, we can still do stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. once I got over, you know, my starstruckness, it was <laughs> 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 learned a lot in this conversation Yeah, um, and very excited to, to share it with folks. So yeah. without any further ado, um, I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at 100 different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's 
the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Olufemi Taiwo, welcome to Hot Take. You're our first philosopher here. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, I like to think of myself as a philosopher, so, you know. Yes. I'll, I'll try not to ruin it for any future philosophers. <laughs> We're super excited that you could make time for us. Yeah. While you're, you know, out there touring for two books, not one, but two. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So we feel very honored. Yeah. So when did you first start thinking about climate and what what led you there? Let's just go ahead and get into it. So I actually, you know, I'm I'm not a environmentalist or, you know, earth scientist by background, obviously, right? I'm a political philosopher. And I'd say for the better part of the last decade, I've started to drift more and more towards climate politics. And I didn't really set out to do that. I was just trying to think about kind of orthodox topics in political philosophy, you know, um, and politics in general. So what are good economic structures, you know, what are the trends in geopolitics. Um, I I work on colonial thought and anti-colonial thought. And so I'm like, you know, what are are the baddies of the world going to be up to in the next few years? And what's it going to take to counter them? Mm. You know. This is sounding like a comic book. There, it's it's getting real. It's getting real comic booky out there. I'm not gonna lie to you. You know the yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. you know, but but the dark comic books. You know the Frank Miller stuff. Um, but mm-hmm. I basically just kind of backed into it from there. As soon as I tried to answer any of those questions on a time scale longer than a few years, I kept running into basically all of the stuff that climate scientists are talking about, you know, where's the water going to be? Where's the arable land going to be? You know, what kinds of energy moves are the big powers of the world going to make? You know, those are the questions you have to start thinking about if you want to know 20 years from now what the world is going to look like. And so eventually, after coming to that conclusion from five or six different angles, I just thought, you know, maybe I just need to look at climate politics directly. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What was like the first, the first thing that you started looking into in, in like any detail on that front? Um, basically, I'd say the first thing I was starting to look at was militaries 
Um, so, mm-hmm. as as folks might know, the the U.S. has a bunch of bases across the African continent. There's all of these various, you know, counterinsurgencies that they claim to be running. They're not alone. France and Russia have big footprints across the continent. And you dig into what, you know, security studies people and all the, you know, and all these, the huge complex of people that work on these issues and, you know, are involved in national security, this or that. And they're all, you know, they're pretty they're pretty honest about things. You know, they expect more conflict as the world gets hotter, as displacement becomes a bigger and bigger problem and people are displaced in bigger and bigger numbers. And they are very explicitly tooling up to be fighting conflicts in more of the world and fighting hotter conflicts in parts of the world where they're already fighting. That's super... um... Interesting and terrifying. Um, Okay, I have a really important question for you. Oh, my God. And that is... here It's happening, Mary. How do philosophy students feel when they fail an exam on empiricism? Well, Amy, a... I'm so proud of you for this at the same time that I'm just like cringing so hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't think, obviously nobody likes to fail anything, but, uh, you know, I think students are very confused when they don't do well in philosophy, you know, isn't it? Isn't it just vibes at the end of the day? Vibes and questions. Just what? How I feel about this? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that actually, that's, you know, that's most of it. You know, but there are you know arguments and such. Um, so you do have to do other things in philosophy than just have opinions. Femi, the correct answer here is humiliated. You know, hum. I would like to speak up on the part of our listeners for whom this is over their head and just say, this is over my head, too. I have no idea what the hell y'all are talking about. <laughs> I knew it was a dad joke, but I have no idea what this is. It's a philosophy dad joke, just for you. Right. I combed the internet. Take is brought to you by Bite. I was brushing my teeth this morning and realized I have not bought toothpaste in a lot longer than I usually have because mm. I, I feel like these uh, the Bite pellets last a lot longer that's, than a tube of toothpaste. I think that's true. Yeah, they're also like neater, so much neater. Yeah, and like the jar is actually cute, so you don't mind it being out on your sink. Um, unlike mm-hmm. a gooby, gross toothpaste. Too. I mean, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's always nice to reduce your, your plastic waste. And I like having a clean vanity. As mm-hmm. you know, I'm a skincare freak, so it looks nice alongside my skincare stuff. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
And and Amy, I'm going to ask you a question now. Uh, did you know that you swallow five to seven percent of your toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth? That's an entire blob of toothpaste every seven days, Amy. It's gross. It sounds gross. It just like every time I hear that, I think about like just actually intentionally eating a giant blob of toothpaste and how gross that would be. (laughs) (laughs) That would be pretty gross. Also, I know you knew that stat because you asked me all the time. So I finally got to ask you. It's true. Um, It's true. Yeah. But that's why Bite makes dry toothpaste tablets made with clean ingredients that are sulfate-free, palm oil-free, and glycerin-free. Bite toothpaste bits are also convenient. You can just pop a bit in your mouth, chew it up, and start brushing. It will turn into paste just like you're used to, but with no plastic tube or messy paste. Yeah. Um, I love them. They're good. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice. It also kind of like makes you feel kind of cool or something. It feels like taking a... It does feel cool. Like a chiclet. Feels like a little bit futuristic. I like it. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Um, as we mentioned, they come in refillable glass jars and they send refills and compostable packages. So they're better for our bodies and our earth. No more plastic toothpaste tubes. Yeah. Bite makes plastic-free alternatives for everything in your bathroom sink from toothpaste, mouthwash, toothbrushes, and deodorant. So you can cut out the harsh chemicals and plastic waste without compromise. I actually really do love the deodorant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it smells nice and it works easily. Nice. Um, Bite is offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash hot take or use code hot take at checkout to claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash hot take. Hot take is brought to you by real paper. I think we all know by now how much I love this toilet paper. I really love it a lot. Not just because it's soft and has good texture and all of those things that you want in a toilet paper, but also because it's way better for the planet than normal toilet paper. Every day, 27,000 trees are cut down just to make conventional toilet paper. 27,000 trees per day. That's That's a lot of trees. Yeah. It's almost 10 million trees per year just to make something that's used once and then flushed down the toilet. Or if you live in Costa Rica, like me, put into a a trash can right next to the toilet. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? (laughs) It's a thing, Mary. Latin America. Latin America, not great plumbing. Um, That's where real paper comes in. Real makes sustainable toilet paper that contains no trees. No trees. It uses 100% bamboo instead. Which is awesome because bamboo is basically a grass. So you can... Mm -hmm. Cut it. If you imagine like cutting grass, that's what you can do with bamboo and it sprouts right back. No problem. There's no replanting needed. You don't damage the plant. You just kind of harvest what you need and it and it continues to grow. They also don't use any any plastic in their packaging. Their packaging is compostable and they offer free shipping on all orders. And if I can add, the packaging is pretty cute. It is cute. It's like exciting to get this uh, box of teepee. Real paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping and 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash hot and sign up for a subscription using our code hot at checkout, you get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. That's R-E-E-L. P-A-P-E-R dot com slash hot or enter the promo code hot to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. So let's 
stop flushing our forests and try Reel's tree-free paper. Reel is paper for the planet. Fibby, I was telling you earlier that you're one of my favorite follows on Twitter. And Twitter is just such an interesting place. It's like where we've gone to have all of our public discourse, really, especially in the pandemic. And there's no better place to realize that our public discourse is just broken. And one of them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like all the conversations around cancel culture, et cetera, but also identity politics. So you've written a lot about identity politics. So can you tell us what were identity politics originally and what would you say they've become? So the term identity politics comes from the Combay River Collective, which was a group of uh, black feminist socialists, um, queer black women who were socialists, and they met in Boston and came up with this way of thinking and way of articulating their politics. And as I understand what they said back in the late 70s, identity politics is basically an idea about how you get started doing politics, um, one way you could get started doing politics is to just, you know, have a bird's eye view of what the entire world system or what your country's political system looks like. And from that view, from 50,000 feet, decide what the most important issue is. And regardless of who you are and where you are in that system, just deciding to work on that. That's how some people think about politics. But another way of thinking about politics is the one that I think they were suggesting with this term identity politics, which is start from where you are, right? Look around. What are your priorities based on your social position, based on what's happening in your life, based on your immediate circumstances and, you know, the kinds of things that inform what we now describe under the term identity, right? Stuff that pertains to you. Start there, figure out what's important to you, do politics from there. That's compatible with moving on to working with other people who are differently positioned and who have different priorities. But you'd be working with them, you know, in a real self-determined way, in a way that took where you are in the world seriously. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think it's a good idea. And that's the team I would say that I'm on. Now, on social media and in general in the years since the 70s, there's people who have taken the idea of working on identity-based issues and taken it to mean, well, what you should be up to is working with people like you and working on issues that have to do with your circumstance. And you should be skeptical or even hostile to people outside of that kind of small group. So people have taken it in a sort of anti-coalitional direction. I don't think that's a necessary part of identity mm-hmm. politics. I don't think that's a good part of identity politics or politics in general. Um, and so I would uh, be against that, I guess. So how do you identify with politics? Huh? I was trying to get philosophical. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> pan-Africanist, socialist, eco-socialist, you know, there's a lot of is you could describe me as, but 
I think those are fun. Oh, shit. I didn't expect you to have an actual answer for that, but I oh, am really? talking to a philosopher. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever asked me that directly. Uh, you know? <laughs> oh, really? Surprising. Yeah. 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 No, that's funny. No one ever asked. Um, okay. Sort of following on from, from there, what can you define elite capture for us? I know this is like the focus of your most recent book, but, um, you know, a lot of people might not have heard that term and especially with respect to identity politics. What does that mean? Yeah. So elite capture is just what happens over time when the most advantaged people in a group get control of stuff and maybe more importantly, processes that should be for the whole group. So social scientists who were studying the idea of elite capture would often talk about how aid packages that were meant for a whole um, village or town or state ended up, um, the lion's share of it ended up with the people who were most advantaged, you know, big landowners or religious authorities, whatever the case might be. Another version of that would happen with something other than monetary resources, but the political direction of a movement or an organization is also something that can be subject to elite capture. So the example I've been giving these days um, is one that echoes a criticism of LGBTQ organizing that uh, Barbara Smith of the Columbia River Collective is one of the people who have leveled this criticism. And um, they say that for a while there, the movement got overly focused on marriage equality to the exclusion of other things that were also of interest to queer folks and arguably of uh, greater importance to the larger group of queer folks. And one explanation of the reason for that is that marriage equality was the big priority of people who were advantaged within that group of people, um, white cis gay men, for example. And if that's the case, then that would also be an example of this thing I'm calling elite capture. Could, um, would it, would it be accurate to say that sort of like, like the girl boss feminism is kind of an example too? this idea of like, as long as I'm on top of the power structure, the power structure is fine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Girl boss feminism is a is a great example, right? Um, you know, not many women are in a position to be bosses, right? So the gender politics of who is a boss and how we relate to bosses is clearly of interest to that group of women, that small subgroup of women, but maybe isn't what the entire group of people under that identity label would require for their liberation. Yeah, I always thought something was kind of wrong with the whole girl boss situation because I've had a lot of bosses in my life and a lot of them have been women and a lot of them have been incredibly shitty. Anyway, in in your book, you write about how politicians and corporations co-opted Black Lives Matter as a classic example of elite capture. So can you explain a little bit more about that here? Yeah, one of the examples I use in the book, um, and, you know, it's just an example that I connect with personally because I live in Washington, D.C. But one of the examples I use in the book was um, the painting of Black Lives Matter on the actual physical streets of Washington, D.C. 
So a couple years ago, in the summer of the protests that happened after a bunch of police killings, including the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Tony Dayton, many others, mm-hmm. um, there were all those protests across the country. The various police forces are out there, you know, tear gassing all of us and hitting us with batons and kettling us and this, that, and the third. And the mayor of D.C. has, you know, has Black Lives Matter painted on the streets in front of the White House where this has happened, a sort of challenge to the Trump administration and maybe a message to a base of something like solidarity with the movement, and then goes on to approve a larger budget for the police, which the movement had been kind of centrally organized around fighting. Right? So the symbol of solidarity doesn't end up being in lockstep with the actual kind of substantive political decisions that this politician, a black politician in this case, is making. Hmm. Somehow I didn't quite, I didn't clock that they increased the budget for the police at the same time that they painted that. Hmm. Yeah, you were, you know, we were all looking at the, we were all looking at the paint. Yeah. Right. And the Trump right. administration. That's, that's, that's part of, that's part of how it goes. Yeah. And yeah, and that, yeah. the Trump administration, right. Right. It kind of feels like it's harder for people to hide behind symbols now that Trump is out of office. And a lot of these companies and different entities haven't caught up to that. So they're still trying to, like, you know, offer these symbols and symbolic gestures. But now the big bad is kind of not gone, but out of the White House. So it's harder to do that. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it is harder to hide behind symbols at this point. But you could say that they don't really need to, right? Now President Biden will just say, I want more money to go to the police. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there isn't much that the rest of us can really do about that. And this is actually one of the things that I'm trying to point out in the book. It is true that sometimes when it's convenient, politicians will co-opt slogans like Black Lives Matter and paint it on the streets and listen to black women. Remember that one? You know, some people on the left will be like, well, this shows some kind of special deficiency of identity politics. You know, the fact that it can be co-opted in this way. But, you know, clearly whatever kind of power, co-optation or not, that Biden is wielding or and responding to when he just says, I'm going to increase the police budget and then attempts to do so, is not the kind that the deficiency of identity politics is in a position to explain. All right, so I think we, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we're so focused on the dishonest things that politicians do with our slogans, and we kind of replace our frustrations with those dishonest things that they do in place of a more sober and serious to my mind analysis of why the politicians have the power that they have. Mm. Do you, do you see any difference at all in, in the sort of elite capture approach of corporations versus politicians? Like, you know, when Exxon or BP or whatever is like, we care about the LGBTQ community or, um, you know, Chevron kind of 
infamously did a whole Black Lives Matter thing on their Twitter feed when when those protests were happening too, which is a lot. That's a lot. Um, um, But yeah, like, I guess I'm curious about like what, what difference you see between those things, if any. Yeah, I'm not sure that I see much of a difference. You know, I think at the end of the day, neither President Biden nor Chevron needs the majority of people to really believe in what they're doing. It would be nice. I guess if there if there is a difference, you know, it's that we do vote for who's going to be president. You know, we have a nominally democratic way of electing political leaders. And so there is some actual leverage that people have as an electorate over the maintenance of power of those officials, you know, whatever criticisms we might have of liberal democracy. Um, but there, is, there isn't even the pretense that the actions of Chevron are going to be put to a vote by the people who are affected by carbon emissions. No one pretends that the shareholders' meetings includes us. So if there's a difference, it's just that. But that seems like a difference of degree, maybe, more than a difference of kind. The thing is, I was thinking about this when I was when I was reading your book that like the, especially around the like the tendency to focus on the deficiency of identity politics instead of like looking at power structures. I, like I I feel like that happen that's happening right now in the the climate movement. Like there's this huge like oh maybe we shouldn't talk about how climate impacts. Um, black and brown people first and worst because Mm -hmm. there's research that shows that like white people tune out when we do that or like I don't know like there's there's this way that that like fossil fuel companies are are able to really sort of easily weaponize the the movement's um you know kind of lack of a racial lens to to its favor you know it's it's very easy to say oh you know the green transition will leave out Um, low-income communities and people of color because, like, the climate movement has a a huge history of actually doing that, you know? Um, So anyway, I don't know. I I just, like, I wonder if... um, I wonder if that's, like, a good lesson for the the climate movement to, like, instead of worrying overly much about, you know, how people in power will or won't react to identity framings to, like, just look at the fundamental lack of justice in the movement and fix it. Yeah, at the end of the day, you have to decide for yourselves what is important. The other side Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is going to lie, cheat, and steal. And the way that they lie, cheat, and steal will depend on what you give them to lie about and, you know, what things you develop that they'll want to try to steal. But the fact that they're going to try to co-opt language or peel off support from people is something that is remarkably consistent across various kinds of things you might try to do. Whatever you're going to do, Chevron is going to try to downplay it or co-opt it, you know, whatever it occurs to them, because they're on the other side of the political issue. If you let opposing them become the main or only thing that we're paying attention to, then you're going to lose track of your own principles and values and you know, that's not a strategic advantage of any kind that I can think of. Mm, yeah. 
Um, we need to go to an ad break, but I just have one really quick question before we do. Um, if you put the DMV on a scale, what would it weigh? <laughs> DMV is in Department of Motor Vehicles, or are you talking about the area around D.C.? No, the area. <laughs> it would weigh a ton. All right. <laughs> it will weigh a washing ton. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Where are Washington? These, where, the, I was not told oh, to prepare so for these good. puns. <laughs> All right, we'll be back. Hot Take is brought to you by Birch. I got my Birch mattress in April and I've been sleeping so much better ever since. Mm. Kind of makes it a little difficult to get out of bed in the morning because so like I've started keeping my books closer to the bed (laughs) (laughs) and my notebooks a little closer so I can just like hang out a little bit longer. (laughs) Um, It's it's pretty nice. Birch mattresses are stylish, comfortable, and most importantly, environmentally conscious. The non-toxic mattresses are made right here in America and are crafted with natural and organic materials that have been sustainably sourced. Hmm, that's awesome. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, So we want to give all our listeners the ability to enjoy a deep and restful night's sleep with a new mattress from Birch. They source only the finest quality materials like organic fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex to create luxurious mattresses designed to give you the best night's sleep. Every Birch mattress is constructed with non-toxic materials and a focus on breathability to keep you cool at night. For you people who sweat. It's me, me. It's for me. Yeah. Um, I think people don't think about this that much, uh, but they should. The the whole like toxic materials and mattresses thing, because like, you know, your body is on that. Maybe there's a sheet, but that's not like a lot of protection between you and like lots of chemicals that have been used to grow cotton or to develop the um, synthetic fibers that are in some mattresses or the plastic that is in, you know, some of the the liners on them, all of that stuff. Um, You know, like why not just uh, not have that all around you while you're sleeping at night? Plus Birch knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. Mm -hmm. That's why they offer a 100 night risk-free trial. Try out your new Birch mattress, see how your body adjusts. And if you decide it's not the best fit, which I have questions for you, but you're welcome to return it for a full refund. And don't forget, Birch mattresses are American-made. Birch owns their own manufacturing facility and relies on skilled manufacturers to produce the highest quality product. They believe so strongly in the quality of their mattresses that each mattress includes a 25-year warranty. Wow. 25 okay, years? Okay, that's news to me. I didn't quite get that. 25 years? That's All right, crazy. Birch. Yeah. All right, bet. Yeah. Bet. Birch mattresses are shipped directly from their manufacturing facility to your door for free. The mattress comes rolled up in a box and is super easy to set up. Um, I'm telling you, if I can get that mattress set up and up all of my stairs, and um, I'm not a bodybuilder. I don't know (laughs) what y'all might think. I know y'all haven't seen me in person, but yeah, not that, not that swole. Um, They're pretty easy to set up is all I'm trying to say. Birch is giving $400 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows, which have the Amy Westervelt seal of approval. True. I'm like <laughs> a picky bitch when it comes to pillows, and these things are amazing. 
Like, yeah. I, I would buy a mattress just for the pillows. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's a big endorsement. Um, go to birchliving.com slash hot to take advantage of this deal. That's $400 off and two free eco rest pillows. Better sleep better with Birch. Cricket is bringing you the election coverage you love to hate with Cricket Radio every weekend in October on Sirius XM Progress and on the Sirius XM app. Join our lineup of podcast hosts, candidates, experts, and more, including Hot Take at 8.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. Eastern each Sunday as we break down all the issues that matter this November, dive into conversations shaping our current political climate, and give the only 100% correct opinions in politics. You don't want to miss this. Listen to Channel 127 or subscribe now and get up to four months free of SiriusXM. See offer details at SiriusXM.com slash crooked. And we're back. <laughs> okay. So, so Femi, you have pushed back on the listen to X group of people trope. Um, like I just mentioned, like the listen to black women trope that, that was running around for a while. Can you explain why and what you'd prefer to see in terms of inclusivity that doesn't default to, quote, identity politics? So I'm still on team identity politics. So it's not identity politics that I want to leave aside. Um, but there's a way right. of using identity politics that I want to leave aside. Um, and that's what I've been calling deference politics. Okay. And I think that's the thing you were describing in the question, right? So the idea that we find somebody from the marginalized group right. and we make them a spokesperson slash thought leader slash whatever. Um, and we take their political judgment. It's Token. our political judgment. We take direction from them, so on and so forth. I'm not about that. I think that gets a lot wrong. One of the arguments I make against it is at the end of the day, we don't have equal or even representative access to other people's views or perspectives, especially marginalized folks, right? Some people get pipelined to prisons and other people get pipelined to PhDs, right? So if you stand on the end of all the social processes that decided whose opinions you're even in a position to interact with and which people you're in a position to interact with. It's gone through all these filters of this unjust social structure that we have all these problems with. And you have no reason to think at the end of that, the particular person or viewpoint that the world has put in front of you is the one that's going to produce a you know, good progressive revolutionary perspective. Right. So I tell the, you know, one of the stories I talk a little bit about, one of the cases I talk a bit about in the book is the idea of the, the or not the idea, the actual Flint water crisis. And the direct thing to say is, you know, actually, we're not trying to figure out what it's like to have your water poisoned. That's not to say that everybody already knows what it's like to have your water poisoned, but that isn't the question. The question is, how do we clean the water? Right. And that is a question that's going to involve, obviously, listening to people who live in Flint, but it's going to involve listening to plumbers and it's going to involve listening to the kind of lawyers who can sue the government. It's going to involve listening to the kind of organizers who can rally support and organize citizen science campaigns. You know, it's going to involve listening to a lot of people. And the questions that we're asking them aren't 
about this experiential idea of what it's like to be marginalized or oppressed in a certain way, but it's about how to do a practical thing, which is resist and, you know, destroy a power structure that is doing the harmful thing in the first place. Hmm. So part of me wants to argue with this because I want people to listen to me specifically because I am right (laughs) about everything. Um, (laughs) So, you know, that's one thing. Yeah, to be clear, everybody should be signing Mary. That's, you know, that is built into what I'm Damn saying. right. Yes. Damn right. We can end the episode right there, but we won't. There's more to talk about. But I do kind of worry about, specifically in the climate space, where black and brown people, women, just like basically anybody who wasn't already a rich white man, has not really had access to, like, work on the solutions so much. Like, it's been such a white-dominated space that it's like, well, if we— take away this idea that you need to, you know, listen to the people who are on the front lines of the climate crisis because they're more intimately aware of what it feels like to be on the front lines of the climate crisis and therefore may know more about the solutions than the people trying to solve the problem. Does that put us back in the same place of where it's really just wealthy white men working on the solutions who happen to be the exact same people working on the problem, you know, demographically? Hmm. So I guess there's two things to say. One, we are there. Like what what you just described is is correct. In terms of who has been put in a position to work on these issues from a, you know, kind of more technical background, we are in a position where you know, the people who have certain specific kinds of expertise are going to skew you know, white, male, middle class, upper class, all the things we can fill out. But this critique isn't what puts us Mm -hmm. there. This critique is just for us to admit that that's where we are, right? And actually trying to change the subject to we need to figure out what it's like to be oppressed isn't going to change that reality. What is going to change that reality is changing that reality, right? We actually could as a as a matter of you know concerted deliberate political action try to change who it is that gets access to the kinds of information that lets you participate in discussions about how to fix this or that we actually could decide that we want to democratize scientific processes democratize the collection of information and who gets to be in those conversations And that would require, you know, not a norm of listening to, you know, different people as though they have all the answers already, but actual structures of how we ask the questions in the first place. Hmm. You know what this is making me think of? And it's so like, ah, is is that, you know, who is like the only sector that I know of that's investing a serious amount of money in like STEM training for young people of color. Oh my God, can I guess? In low income communities. Who is it, Mary? Fossil fuel industry. That's right. That's right. So, like. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, the predictability. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. 
That's so interesting. You um you kind of you made this comment in your book that I think is is um related to this, but correct me if I'm wrong about like instead of worrying so much about who's in the room, we need to leave the room altogether. Um, <laughs> but it feels like what you're suggesting is that people like just take a step back and look at the actual structural stuff instead of worrying about um, this this point that's kind of like two steps beyond that in terms of like, oh, let's worry about how we talk about it. Hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. right. And obviously these structures and the people atop them have more resources than the rest of us. And, you know, we're not going to be able to challenge this huge global structure of capitalism just by looking at it differently, right? Obviously, I'm not trying to suggest anything like that. All that I want to do is take a look at deference politics and point out that we're not challenging things at all, right? Or deference politics isn't challenging things at all. Mm. Mm. I mean, so it sounds like there's a lot of arguments here to focus on systems and not individuals which generally I'm for, but is it okay if I individually hate CEOs of oil companies, though? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just wanted to make sure that was still cool. That's fine. Amy well knows I'm all about prison abolition, but just, like, give me a couple of gulags to hold on to (laughs) for some very... That's true. (laughs) (laughs) it's true it's very true um okay so this is super interesting and first when i when i saw that you had this second book coming out i was like oh my god how does he do it but um but they super relate to each other i think in this in this very interesting way like what we were just talking about i think kind of goes directly to some of the arguments that you're making in reconsidering reparations around sort of the need to to not just think about repairing damage or compensating people for past damages, but also like how do we fundamentally change things so that that damage doesn't keep happening now and into the future. So um, yeah, I'm just wondering about like how, how you think about this idea of of world building or, you know, uh, a constructive approach to politics um, and, and like how it kind of crosses into, to both of these realms. Yeah, I I definitely use these terms, you know, world-making, constructive politics in both of the books. And I really think the idea is more or less the same. But you need to actually make the world different if you're trying to make the world different. Mm -hmm. And you put it like that, and everyone's like, of course, right? (laughs) Like, what else would we be doing? Right. Um, but if I'm right about the if I'm right about the criticism of deference politics, you know, then not everybody is in fact thinking about politics or organizing politics in that way, right? Um, much more importantly, I think you know there's a sort of ecological view that I'm trying to push for, both specifically on the topic of reparations, but more generally in left politics. And, you know, we have to think, what is the environment like in the sense of overall political environment, but also in the sense of the literal environment? Um, But what would the environment be like 
where we can actually win any of these political contests that we're trying to win. Like, do we think we can challenge corporate power with a union density of 10% like we have in the United States? Or would it need to be triple that or quadruple that if we wanted to win? I think that is a constructive question if you're trying to build a labor movement that can stand up to the corporations and political elites that run everything. That's super interesting. I guess, yeah, like how does that, how does that relate to kind of, I don't know, I guess like kind of getting back to the original intent behind this, this term of identity politics, the, 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 the thing that makes you say that you're still team identity politics, how do you kind of, how do you think through moving everyone over, over to that interpretation instead of this, like this deference politics thing? So one of the ways that I think through the relationship of identity politics to this, and one of the ways that I think identity politics is particularly valuable, is that if we have this ecological view, one of the things it explains is why we don't all have to be doing the same thing. Right? So I think for some people, there's a kind of central organization that would be the engine of progress. Maybe it's a mass socialist organization. Maybe it's a political party that was uh, maybe a genuine labor party in the United States, for instance, or maybe a better left party than the existing ones, um, as might be the case in other parts of the world that have labor parties. But some people think, you know, the struggle of trying to make the world different is trying to get people to follow this line um, and join the particular good party and um, or good revolutionary vanguard or whatever the case might be and get enough people doing the right thing to make the world change. But if you have this other more ecological view then maybe that's not what you think. Maybe you think it's good and potentially helpful for there to be more labor unions. It's good and potentially helpful for there to be more, say, debtors unions. It's good and potentially helpful for there to be more tenants unions. It's good and potentially helpful for there to be a stronger left feminist movement defending reproductive justice. It's good and potentially helpful for there to be a stronger abolitionist movement trying to close prisons and defund police departments. And the proliferation of each of those things is going to help each of the other things. And you can make that case at the level of issues, but I think what's also just demonstrably true from history is that another thing that helps decide which people some people are willing to work with and how deeply some people are willing to work with other people has to do with these things that we've called identities, right? Like maybe there are some people who would be willing to be part of a debtors union that was specifically geared to trans folks. Or maybe there's some people who would like to do prison abolition work that was centered around black experiences with 
incarceration, and policing. And if you're like me on team identity politics, I think that's fine. That's maybe, you know, helpful. I can easily see how that could fit into a larger social movement that ended up with changing the world. Mm. And I don't need to convince them to join, you know, my mass party and agree with all the things that I think are true about the Russian Revolution Mm -hmm. in 1917 Mm -hmm. or whatever. I don't think I need to convince everybody of all these particular things. I just think I need to convince enough people to do one of the many things that would help push politics Hmm. forward. It just sounds so practical. I love it. It's like, <laughs> let's, let's do some specific tasks and get them done. Um, not, I'm not trying to minimize your approach. I, I actually think it's like, it's, it's really, really, um, like, it's weirdly like mind blowing, but also just focusing people's minds on like the practical tasks at hand too, in this way that I, I just don't see a lot of people doing right now. Hmm. Yeah. It actually makes me feel less overwhelmed to hear you talk about, it. you know, like when you hear the the term world making, it feels it can feel a little bit like, oh, shit, we have to like completely redo everything. But you're right. If every if you have like like small groups of people who are, you know, maybe part of a loosely connected collective, but like each working towards this shared goal and each doing a different role and a different thing, then then it becomes much more achievable. Why do you think there's been such a, like, tendency towards doing things the way they're done now? Like this, you know, no, we must all be part of this, you know, these big groups. Is it just money and, and like, power consolidation or, like, I don't know. I just, yeah. Is there some social tendency towards that? What's, what is that? I think it's just been, it's just been harder to do lots of campaigns, Mm. right? So the flip side of noticing that union density has fallen in half since the 1980s and, you know, decreased by even more if we take a longer time scale, is that it's just harder to do union stuff, right? Each union that exists is a potential resource for other workers that might unionize, a potential source of examples for other workers who are unionized, trying to figure out potential strategies that might work or might not work. Um, And if you have fewer of them, it's just harder to do the union thing. Hmm. And one of the things that's happened over the past few decades since, you know, a major, I would say, win for the global left over the decades that followed the Second World War is there's been a global crackdown on leftism of all kinds. Right? They've persecuted people, they've killed people in mass, they've um, you know made it more difficult for folks to transmit knowledge and resources and even whole institutions uh, across generations. And so it's just harder to do the range of strategies that people were doing when all of those, intergenerational and intragenerational links were intact. Um, But the more we build workers' unions and debtors' unions and tenants' unions, and the more we do ratepayer strikes and the more we build 
left media outlets and podcasts like this one. And thanks for a shout out. We build out all of these structures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the easier it will be for us to do all of these things next year and the year after that and the year mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. So you seem really drawn to talking about how things, you know, forces can help each other for the greater good. Let's talk about how they can hurt each other for the better greater bad. Um, So how does something like the politics of deference and benevolent racism intersect with ecofascism? Oh. Yeah. Oh, boy. We're getting right to it. It took a little while, but we got (laughs) here. Okay. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think one of the things that emerges on the other side of this kind of essentially quasi-tokenism, really, if you know, if we're talking about it, right? But the idea that what you need to do is find somebody of the right identity category and take political direction from them mm-hmm. is just the co-option of that strategy by the right. Um, and again, as I said before, we shouldn't be surprised that they co-opt that strategy. They would co-opt any other strategy that was happening. (laughs) But what it does mean is that, you know, the Herschel Walkers of the Mm -hmm. world are going to find, and the Candace Owenses of the Mm -hmm. world and whoever else, you know, they're going to find a ready and willing audience Mm -hmm. on the right. Um, And they'll find lots of resources to get their particular brand of politics out. Um, even in Italy, um, the, some articles I've read recently say that the new brand of fascism there is adopting a, a red-brown approach, as they call it, mm. you know, uh, fascism with left anti-colonial vibes. Yes, I'm seeing so that. I'm seeing that here too. Italian fascists. Yes, yeah. in Costa Rica. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. In the U.S., oh. <laughs> not in Costa Rica. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll quote left anti-colonial luminaries, you know, your Nkrumahs and Sankaras in the service of fascist politics. And I think that's a particularly extreme version of it, but you know, maybe the DC mayor painting Black Lives Matter on the streets and then helping to fund the cost is a more centrist version of it. I think the the lesson we should take from that is just, you know, it is, there's seven to eight billion people in the world and you can find a person from any group who believes anything, right? Um, so, and you can find a quote from even people who disagree with you where there's overlap of opinion, you know, like how the entire U.S. political spectrum quotes Dr. King for this mm-hmm. and that, re- regardless of what the guy actually thought, mm-hmm. right? So all this is to just say deference politics isn't going to provide you a good strategy of figuring out your political direction, you know, but that's not to say that identity politics won't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting and terrifying. It's all a little bit terrifying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a climate show. Yeah. 
it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so I'm 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 assuming that you saw the the interaction between Farhana and John Kerry, where she was asking about uh, this. This was at like during Climate Week. They were having a whole conversation about the U.S.'s role in the international climate summits. And John Kerry was asked, you know, when will the U.S. actually deliver on their promised kind of funding for um, for loss and damages and and also stop getting out of the way of people having that conversation? So I'm, I'm curious, like, A, what you think about, lo- like, the conversation around loss and damages with respect to... Um, your thoughts on reparations in general, and then, and then also, yeah, what what your take was on that whole exchange? John, John Kerry got very like um, flustered, huffy, very huffy. I would say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was, there was a flounce. He was not flounce. having a good time. Let's <laughs> just put it no, that he way. Was uh. not. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh. I'm I'm curious what you um, what you think of all that. Uh, adorable. <laughs> yeah, Kerry. Um, yeah, well, let me not. All right. So <laughs> you can, just so you know, in general, I actually am not, <laughs> I'm not familiar with this exchange. That's the only reason, oh. that's the only reason okay. I'm not going to go in on him for this particular thing. Um, but just reacting to your description of it, um, I, I, I find that unsurprising. I'll put it that mm. way. And in general, what I would say about loss and damage is, you know, I think loss and damage is a great idea. It's a great vehicle for the kind of redistribution that I think would be a necessary condition for remaking the world in the right kind of way, right? Because it's not just building solar panels um, and putting them up, but it's also building the political structure around those that are going to be compatible with self-determination for everybody. Um, And so it's going to involve redistribution of money and power, essentially. And loss and damage is one vehicle for doing that. And I think it fits squarely in to how I would think about reparations and I think how lots of other people think about reparations and climate. I'm, of course, not nearly the first person. There's decades and decades of uh, people talking about ecological debt and essentially related concepts, if not identical concepts. Um, But I think loss and damage clearly fits in, and a lot of the people who have been advocating for loss and damage as a vehicle have said so already. And I just think they're right. Um, I, I guess the only other thing I would say, which is, again, what advocates of loss and damage also themselves say is that, you know, the broader reconstructive ethos is bigger than loss and damage. You don't want to wait until something is gone to think about redistribution from the rich to the poor, from the global north to the global south, in to build the world in the direction of justice. You also want those kinds of redistributions to happen for climate adaptation, so preventing the losses in the first place, um, also for climate mitigation, which would also help prevent losses in the first place. Um, And I think those are important not to lose sight of. 
What do you think of the assertion that, you know, nobody has the wherewithal or the money to pay for loss and damage? Somebody's got the money. (laughs) (laughs) I I just... (laughs) Well, that was the argument uh, with Farhana and and John Kerry. It was like, nobody has that kind of money, like, whatever. And it's like, well, what about your military, though? I'm saying, like, the Department of Defense has that kind of money. Yeah, so does the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which I believe is entirely funded by oil. Just as a start, as a start. <laughs> oh, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a trillion dollars in there, guys. Let's get after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's one thing to say that nobody could pay for all the damages that are happening all at once. Um, I don't think, I'm not even sure that's true because of all the things we just rattled off, Right. But even if it were, that's not to say that you that the U.S. and lots of other places in the world can't kick in more than they're kicking in now mm-hmm. towards addressing huge disasters in Pakistan and Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. the Horn and all the other places that are, you know, dealing with crisis right mm-hmm. now. And it's just it just seems very disingenuous, bordering on dishonest. Not not bordering, just dishonest. I don't even know why I said that. It just seems dishonest to say mm-hmm, otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um, sorry, the Farhana that we're talking about is uh, not just she doesn't just go by one name like Cher. It's Farhana <laughs> Yamin. She's a, a climate lawyer and she's been involved in like a lot of the the climate negotiations over the years. Um, so I, I think I mean, I, actually, I heard from someone there that she very intentionally kind of moved to the front row <laughs> to ask Carrie that question, which was um, an interesting move. It was a good one. I liked it. But I, I also actually it makes this makes me wonder about kind of some of the stuff we were talking about earlier around structure, like. There's this huge focus on um, getting the money, which obviously is very important. But like there's there's been not that much around how that money would then actually be redistributed and who would do the redistributing. You know, like we don't want the World Bank, for example, in charge. Of oh, that. dear God. <laughs> like, yeah. So like, I, I don't know. I just like, is that something that you've you've thought about, Femi? Like what, you know, what would an equitable redistribution uh, um, of money in, in like a loss and damages framework look like. Just that, just uh, solve that on the fly. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) I assume this was in the book. I I talked about it in the books. Um, So, all right. So there's a, there's obviously a lot that would have to happen for any of this to work, but the broad thing I would say is that multiple scales of redistribution need to happen. Um, and transfers redistribution happening on individual or household level scales is a possibility and already happens now, you know, with much smaller amounts than we would like, but you can just, in fact, give people money. There's unconditional cash transfer programs happening lots of places. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are billed as experiments. I don't really know. I, I 
couldn't tell you, you know, why people are so convinced that we need to do experiments around this. We actually know a lot about what happens when people get money. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know. <laughs> more research. You more know, research whatever. is needed. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but groups like um, uh, Pacto Eco Social del Sur build, build uni- universal basic income as part of their broader view of what ecological justice looks like. Um, and part of the reason, I think, is what's behind your question, right? We, we have lots of imperfect political institutions. The IMF and the World Bank are certainly on the list, if not at the top of the list, but also, you know, national governments are not perfectly representative of everyone in either the global north or the global south. And so we can't pretend like just transferring money from government to government is going to be in and of itself a panacea to our problems. But I think that the kinds of corruption and mismanagement that we see at the level of national governments, including in the global south, is related to how much money they have, right? In part because lack of state capacity turns into, one, a, you know, probably a sense of hopelessness about whether or not the social problems can actually be solved. And if you don't think they can be solved, why wouldn't you just graft? Um, And two, they turn into openings for foreign actors to co-opt the policymaking process, whether it's McKinsey offering quote-unquote technical advice to global South governments, or whether it's big institutions like asset managers coming in and offering to finance problems and make up for, you know, budgetary shortfalls um, or lack of budgetary capacity that global South governments have, and then creeping into the policymaking process that way. All that is just to say that transferring money, canceling debt, which I've also had a bit to say about and many others have had a bit Mm -hmm. to say about, all these things would go some distance to making at least the current levels of corruption that we see across the world, across the North-South divide, um, a little less tempting to the powers that be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Femi, we clearly could talk to you forever. (laughs) And we clearly need to have you back on the show soon. So I think we're (laughs) going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming. And everybody should go follow you on Twitter and wishing you the best through the rest of your book tour because it probably is exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.